0: Well, good morning. I invite you to take your Bible and turn back to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 1, and our text is verses 26 and 27. Again, what was just read is a poetic commentary on this most foundational teaching of Scripture that answers the question raised in that psalm, What is man? what is man? What does it mean to be a human being? People have been asking that for a long, long time. What is a human being? What does it mean to be human? People are still asking that. Uh, that question, uh, it, it, it comes upon us, any person who's thinking carefully at some point asks themselves, what does it mean to be a human being? And philosophers have wrestled with this uh, for, for ages. Uh, One ancient philosopher proposed a definition of a human being as a featherless biped. (laughs) He was promptly gifted with a chicken plucked of its feathers with a note attached to it that said, here is your man. The, The ridiculous definitions for what it means to be a human, though, haven't ceased since the ancient days. And people still seem to be confused about what it means to be a human being. And yet, of all questions, this question is incredibly important. Because this question, what does it mean to be a human being, is like a peg. And on that peg hangs some of the most important things in life. Like, what satisfies me as a human being? What's my destiny as a human being? As a human being, how am I to treat other human beings? Human beings of the opposite sex, or human beings of other races, human beings of other religions or of other na- nationalities. It, it, you see how, how many questions are, are hinged or hanging upon this one question, what does it mean to be a human being? Now, it seems as if we are simply unable to answer that question on our own. I mean, do you think that for as smart as some people are, we'd be able to supply a satisfying definition to the question, what does it mean to be a human being? It's like, we're asking this question of ourselves. We are humans, and we can't even figure out what we are, what we are for, what satisfies us, how to treat other people. There's a game that uh, my family and I have played together. It's called, Who Am I? I don't know if some of you have played this game before. You, You put a card on your forehead, and that card has written on it, like a, a duck or a giraffe or a toaster or something. And by asking yes or no questions, you're supposed to, about yourself, you say, who am I? am I? Am I a mineral? Am I a vegetable? Am I an animal? You know, whatever, you're trying to figure out what you are and by asking a series of yes or no questions and the answer's coming back to you, finally figure out what you are. It's almost as if we have a label, but we can't see the label. We need someone to tell us what we are as human beings. But if you think about the condition of our culture and our society, it really does seem like we have lost that answer. the, the whatever key is it is that unlocks the mystery of the human condition, it seems like we've somehow misplaced. If, if you have car keys with you this morning and you were to accidentally leave your vehicle keys on the bench that you're sitting on and go to your car and realize, oh no, I don't have my keys with me, you can't open your car, you can't start your car, you feel frustrated. You can't your car isn't going to do what it's meant to do because you can't unlock it. Or if you come to your computer and and you're supposed to log in and you can't remember your password. You've been there. I know you have. I've been there many times. What was the password? If without the password that program or that account is locked to you, the same is true of what it means to be a human being. It's like we don't we've lost the password, we've misplaced our keys and and because of that Our humanness isn't functioning the way it is meant to function. When we read the Bible, we have utter clarity about what it means to be a human being. No lost password, no misplaced keys. Here it is in black and white. We are taught what it means to be a human being. This is the answer that's to the question given in the psalm what is man what is what is man what is a human being what does it mean to be a human here it is genesis chapter 1 verses 26 and 27 god said let us create man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion so this morning let us be taught by the scripture what it means to be a human being so that we can know how we ought to live we, we don't need to wander in the darkness. We don't need to wander around looking for lost keys or racking our brains for a, a forgotten password. We have the answer. Let us be taught. Let the Holy Spirit teach us and guide us into this truth about what it means to be a human being. So what we're going to do is we're going to first of all look at what it means that we're created in God's image. And then we're going to look at three things this does for us, okay? So we're going to look at, because clearly the Bible speaks of human beings being made in God's image, so we are image bearers. What does it mean to be an image bearer? We're going to answer that question first of all, and then we're going to look at three things this knowledge does for us, okay? So first of all, what does it mean when the Scripture says we are created in the image of God, which means we are image bearers? What does it mean to be an image bearer? Well, let's examine the text closely. So you have your Bible open. Look at Genesis chapter 1 verse 26. Then God said, let us make man, the word man refers to humanity in general, in our image, after our likeness. All right, now let's examine these terms first of all. Image and likeness. Now, image... When, when the original readers of this ancient document would have read this word image, what they would have immediately thought of was a statue, because that's what this word means. It refers to a statue, or elsewhere it's translated idol. An idol, it's, just, it's, a, it's a statue of something. So in ancient days, a king would put statues of himself in the cities and towns that were part of his domain, so that anybody that wanted to know, what does my king look like? What does the, my emperor look like? All they had to do was look at the statue, and in that statue, in that image, they can see his features. They could tell what their king looked like. And so from this, we learn at least one thing about what it means to be God's image bearers. It means that somehow you and I resemble God. So whatever it means to be an image bearer means that we have some resemblance to God. Okay, but not only is there resemblance here in this indicated here by the word translated image, but we also have this word likeness. Now image and likeness both carry the idea of resemblance, but they also carry the idea of a relationship. So if you look at chapter 5 and verse 1, actually verse 3, Genesis 5 verse 3, we find these same two terms that are used, image and likeness, except for this time they're reversed order, likeness and an image and it's not referring to god toward human beings it's referring to adam and toward his son seth so you have image and likeness applied to adam and in, in his relationship with the son seth which simply means i mean you know parents your kids look like you now sometimes you forget that until someone comes up and tells you oh your you your son is, is the spitting image of you but this was exactly what's going on with adam and seth Adam begot a son in his own image and likeness, and so this has to do with a relationship that he, that that Adam and Seth have. So the idea of bearing God's image means that we in some way resemble God. It also means that we are made for a relationship with God. There's a second component of being image bearers. But if you'll go back to Genesis chapter 1 and look at the text, look at the latter half of this verse that begins in, if you're using the ESV, it begins with, and let them have dominion now this could actually be rendered a little differently it could be rendered so that they may have dominion you see how that gives you a little bit of a different understanding it's, god is saying let us make man in our image after our likeness so that they may have dominion in other words the image and the likeness the reason why god put his image into human beings was so that they could have dominion for him so that that gives us a third r for what it means to bear god's image. To bear God's image means that we are created to resemble God in certain ways, to have a relationship with God so that we may rule for God. So, so, what does it mean to be an image bearer? According to the grammar in the text here, it means that we are created with a resemblance to God, to have a relationship with God, so that we can rule for God. That is who we are as human beings. And that is what it means to be created in God's image. Now, what is this? Let's try to make this a little clearer for us because these can be, I don't know, a little bit abstract concepts. Jesus uh, had an incident recorded in Matthew 22 where people were trying to trick him and they asked him, is it lawful, is it legal to pay taxes to Caesar or not? You know, the Jews were... Under the domination of the Roman Empire, and a lot of them didn't like having to pay taxes uh, to Rome. And they were they thought if Jesus says yes, you should pay taxes, then people are gonna be mad. If he says no, you don't need to pay taxes, then he's gonna get in trouble with the Roman authority. So what is he gonna say? Jesus said, Show me a denarius. Now a denarius was a coin that had the image of the Caesar stamped into it. A few weeks ago, I was with my family in Boston and we were walking around uh, the city, and we passed a shop. Outside that shop was a heavily armed officer, and I saw that the name of the shop indicated that there were uh, valuable coins inside and currency inside. So I asked the guy, can we check it out? And he said, sure. And He opens the two thick glass doors and lets us in, and there in the middle display are several coins, one of which Was a denarius from the reign of Tiberius, who was the emperor when Jesus was alive at that time. So I was looking at this coin. I mean, kind of cool to think. Probably not, but Jesus might have been holding that coin that I was looking at. Who knows? But but I was was looking at the coin, and what am I seeing? I'm seeing the profile of Tiberius. Whose image and superscription is this? And they said it's Caesar's. Yes, Caesar Tiberius. And then Jesus says, "So render to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's." Here is the reality. You and I, as human beings, it's as if we have stamped into our very makeup, our nature, what makes us us. We have stamped into us God's image and likeness. We bear a resemblance toward God so that, kind of like currency spread throughout God's dominion, we may, we have value and worth because God has stamped within us his very image. That's what it means to be created in the image of God, to be God's image bearers. Now, that's the clear meaning of this, of this passage, but there is another dimension of what it means to be a human that we have to consider, and that is that as human beings, we have fallen into sin. Okay, so you're not going to understand what's going on with human beings by merely looking at the fact that we're created in the image of God, because just two chapters later, we find recorded for us human beings' choice to live apart from a relationship with God. What's the key to understanding human the human condition? What's the key to understanding, yeah, your own ambitions, your sorrows, your longings for greatness but your inability to achieve it, your addictions, your relational struggles? It all goes back to the fact that you are created in God's image but have fallen into sin. And our having fallen into sin doesn't mean that the coin, as it were, of God's image has been rubbed away. Some people think that it means that we're no longer created in God's image. We still are God's image bearers. Elsewhere in scripture, after the fall, after human beings decided to sin, we still have reference to the fact that you and I bear God's image. That hasn't gone away. Then what's happened? It's almost as if the currency is being used to purchase the wrong items. We still bear God's image, but every part about us is now being used in perverted and distorted ways. For example, the prodigal son. Most of you are familiar with the story. If you're not, very briefly, there is a wealthy man. He has a couple sons. The younger son comes to his father and says, Dad, give me everything that I would inherit on your death. If you die, give me, give me my share of the inheritance. The father gives it to him, no doubt out of grief and and heart, and he was heartbroken because this was an incredibly, this was worse than a slap in the face. This is like saying, dad, I wish you were dead. Give me, give me everything that I, I'll be owed me upon your death. He takes the wealth, he goes into a far country, and he spends his money in riotous living. Now, he's still the son of his father, but he's spending everything that his dad has given him, he's using everything that he was, is, because of his by, by virtue of his, his dad being his dad, against his dad. <clears throat> if you can imagine just a moment for me, with me what it would have been for this prodigal son to walk into the red light district of a faraway city and a couple guys in a bar or a nightclub or something recognizing him. And they say, hey, isn't that old Jacob's son? It looks like, but man, what is he doing here? It couldn't be. No, but look at look at his profile. Look at look at the shape of his brow. I've seen that in old Jacob many times. but what in the world is he doing here? It couldn't be. No, look at that coat. I am pretty sure I've seen old Jacob wearing that coat before. Look at that sack of money over his shoulder. You know that Jacob was wealthy. Yeah, but why would his son why would his son be here? You see what's going on. He still bears resemblance to his father, but now he's living in contradiction to his father. Imagine the, the vexed feeling that that son feels within himself. Every time he looks in the mirror, what does he see? His dad's eyes are staring right back at him. I mean, he can't shake the fact that like, he's looking into the son of his father, but now that what was a kindly look in his father's eyes has been twisted into a, a, a sneer, a look of scorn, or, or a look of, of utter despair on his face. What's going on? He's still the son of his father. He still resembles his father. He feel, still bears the image of his father. But the fact that he bears the image of his father makes his condition all the more wretched. That's what it's like to be a human being infected by sin. It's to still bear the image of God, but to take every aspect of that image and bend it toward our self-serving purposes so that instead of having a relationship with God, we cut ourselves off from the one with whom we were created to have a relationship. We've turned away from the one that we ought to resemble, and we rule in perverted ways instead of ruling for the one that created us in His image. That's what it means to be a human being infected by sin. That's the key to unlocking the mystery of the human condition. There is not a single feature of of human condition right here in Concord, New Hampshire, in New England, in the United States of America that is not somehow explained by these features, these two features. We are God's image bearers, but oh, we have fallen into sin. Now, that's an understanding of it. That's what it means that we're created in God's image. That's what it means to be infected by sin. Now, what does this do for us? What does this do for us? well there are three things I want to point out when you understand that human beings are created in God's image but have fallen into sin this explains us It unsettles us but it also directs us all right it it explains us it unsettles us and it directs us so when you once you know what once you grasp the fact the teaching of Genesis 1 to 27 you and I are God's image bearers, but we have fallen into sin. This, first of all, explains us. Maybe you're thinking, what needs explaining? Just look around you. Just look within. What a weird mixture we are. What, what a, a bizarre, freakish combination of greatness and wretchedness that's the human condition how can you explain that how can you explain human beings constantly I mean reaching for the skies look what we are capable of doing look at look at technology Uh, look at look at what we've accomplished here in the 21st century this is incredible look at artificial intelligence this is I mean you you could think what you like about it but it's absolutely mind-blowing you know what wretchedness and you don't have to go to the alleys you don't have to go in the back streets you don't have to go in the depths of primitive uncivilized jungles to see human wretchedness to see human wretchedness go to silicon valley go to wall street go to washington dc i mean go to the go to the pentagon go to these places of highest intelligence of high morality well maybe by by some standards, of of high achievement. And there you see, in our very best efforts, we prove ourselves to be self-destructive. I mean, there's a passage in the Bible that talks about people beating their plowshares into swords. Think about that. Going into a blacksmith shop, putting pieces of metal like a pitchfork, or a plow, overheat so it softens it, and changing it from something that would cultivate the ground to bring forth fruit, and hammering it into something that can slice through someone. Like, that's what people have done. We've taken our highest technological advances, and we twist them into instruments of self-destruction. I mean, no sooner had people discovered atomic energy within the same generation we've built an atomic bomb. You don't have to go into the, into the gutters and the, and the valleys to look for human wretchedness. No, look for it on the top of human achievement. See, human wretchedness is so great that it's proven in our greatness, so to speak. You can't shake the fact that you want to be great. You can't get rid of that longing here's what's going on. What can explain this but the fact that you are created in the image of God but have fallen into sin? There is no other theory of of human behavior that can explain such bizarre contradictions. How can such greatness and such wretchedness coincide in the same being? I mean, take all kinds of attempts to explain what human beings and the way they are, enlightened thinkers, thought they had unbridled optimism in human progress. Oh, if we could just gain more knowledge and learn more, then, then human beings can be perfected. We can gain certainty of knowledge. We can work out our differences like a math problem. We can understand all these things. It was in the most enlightened nation of the world, Germany, that there was a channel from hell just unleashed upon the world. This is not something against Germany, per se. This is not even something against the, the need to have defense spending. This is just saying how it is that even at our very attempts to build greatness, we prove ourselves to be wretched. What, what can explain this? Is it a view that focuses on the fact that that human beings were so great? Is it one that says, oh, we're so wretched? There's only one perspective. There's only one thing that can explain these paradoxical features of the human condition, and that is this. We were created in the image of God. You, you want optimism? You want something that has a very lofty view of humanness? Okay, we were intended to dwell with God That is high and lofty. It doesn't get much loftier than that. You and I are designed to exist in a relationship with the Creator and not just to exist in a relationship with Him, but to actually be His vice regents, to rule on His behalf, to extend the goodness and truth and beauty that is exploding from His own character to the rest of the world that is created. That is a high and lofty calling. It doesn't get much higher than that. You want a high view of humanness? There it is in the Bible. You want a low view of humanness? We've we've used all of what we are. We've used our resemblance to God, what should have been a relationship with God, our responsibility to rule for God, and we've twisted it into ends and means that destroy ourselves and others. You see, in this this teaching about the image of God, we find something that explains us. It doesn't just explain society and culture, my friend. It explains you. You your heartaches, your longings, your, ad- your addictions. You're, you're running after things you actually thought would build you up and make you greater, and they've actually just kind of self-destroyed you, dis- destroy you. This explains you. I don't know about you, but whenever I think about this, this teaching of the image of God in man, that I have within myself the divine image stamp to have a relationship with God. And when I think about it in conjunction, in connection with the fact that I'm a sinner, I, I feel just, I feel exposed. I feel known. I feel like the woman at the well that Jesus encountered, and, and she's tried to kind of put on a good front before Jesus, and Jesus says, actually, you've had five husbands, and the man you're living with isn't even your husband. And she goes out into the town, and she says, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. The thing that began to draw her to Jesus was the fact that not just that he was the master physician, but that he was the master diagnostician. He diagnosed precisely her problem. I mean, he, he just, he, he, he laid it bare. He told her exactly what was wrong. And I feel the same way, and maybe you do too, when you read in the Bible that we were created in God's image to thrive and flourish in a relationship with our Maker, to love Him, to adore Him, to enjoy Him. And yet we've cut ourselves off in that relationship and we're just feeding on the husks in a pig's die like the prodigal son. I find very, I might find myself very on the witness stand, very exposed, very known. I wonder this morning, if you're here and you, you're, when it comes to Christ and Christianity, you've kind of got like this posture toward Him, because you're not willing to submit to the divine surgeon, are you not at least a little bit moved by the fact that He so accurately diagnoses your condition? If you had an illness, some weird symptoms, and you went from doctor to doctor trying to get an explanation, get a right diagnosis, and none of the doctors could, could offer you something that explained all your symptoms, I mean, one could explain the, the headache and the rash but not the heart issue and the, the pain in the back. One could explain this or that, but, but there was no one, no one physician could explain, could give you an explanation that encompassed everything. And then, then you finally find, find a doctor, and he, he explains, he says, here's what's wrong with you, and, and he draws the lines, he connects the dots of everything that you've experienced. And, you, and it's in that moment, you realize, okay, that's it. He knows what I have. He knows my illness. If you've been kind of pushing Christ away or putting him at arm's length because you are afraid of him some way, are you not at least moved toward him because he knows you so well? Doesn't this, doesn't this somehow move you at least a little bit more toward Christ because he, he has diagnosed your condition? Well, then can you not move a little bit closer to him and realize that maybe he has the cure to and what about those of you who already believe this to be the case? I mean, what about those of you who you, you're like, I've I'm, I'm embraced Christ. I have sworn allegiance to him as king. And, and this explanation for, the, for why human beings are the way they are, why you are the way you are, what does this explanation do for you? Well, it, it's, not, it's not trying to convince you of the fact that you need a, a cure. You know you do what can it do for you? It can give you clarity and courage in a confusing world. Because you and I live in a culture that is screaming at us that what it means to be a human is a fluid thing. That your humanness is something that you are to define for yourself and assert for yourself. That's what our culture is telling us define yourself, express yourself, and what we find in the Bible is that your identity as human being is not something that you must define and assert, it's something that's given to you. When when our culture insists that you must define yourself and then assert that definition of yourself, it is placing a crushing burden on people they cannot bear. The quest to discover yourself by burrowing within yourself, it will get you trapped into a insane loop. You'll never figure it out. The way to know yourself is not by looking within, but by looking outside yourself at your maker who's looking at you and saying, you are my creature. I created you to bear my image so that you can have a relationship with me. You resemble me so that you can rule for my glory. That gives us such clarity, doesn't it? It gives us such clarity because what it means to be a human is not so fluid. It's not something that we define and then express and insist upon other people. It's something that God has graciously given. It's something that He has stamped within our very own being, and that liberates us. That doesn't, that doesn't put us into bondage. It's liberating to discover who you are because of how God has created you. But it also it not only gives you clarity about in contrast to the, how people say that humanness is fluid, but it also gives you clarity about the worth of what it means to be a human being. The worth of what it means to be a human being. See, we live in a culture that is not, is not elevating the worth of what it means to be a human, but it's denigrating it. Human life in our culture is cheap. I, I said earlier, what does it mean, what does it mean to be a human? To be a human means to bear God's image, men and women, male and female, born and unborn, old and young, black and white of all races. That is why, my friend, to stand on the side of the Bible is to stand against abortion, is to stand against racism, is to stand against discrimination. Why? Because every human being bears the image of God and thus has intrinsic value. And knowing this, and knowing the power of explanation given in this, and knowing the fact that there is no other theory about human nature that can satisfactorily explain our perplexing condition, it gives us courage to confront our culture and clarity about the value of human life. Every human life is valuable. Jesus said, what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Not the whole world, not the whole world. But if you believe that about, that about yourself, Are you willing to believe that about others? Do you realize that as you walk around this world, the people sitting on your pew right next to you, they're God's image bearers too. The people that you, C.S. Lewis put it this way, the people that you bump shoulders with, that you admire or snub or criticize or gossip about, They are God's image bearers, and one day they will live somewhere forever. There is no mere mortal. We're all immortal. And for those who are believers in Jesus Christ, the Bible says that we one day will be changed to bear His image perfectly. When you criticize, snub, scoff at, scorn, gossip about a human being, you are doing that toward God's image bearers. this This was the logic of the Apostle James when he wrote his letter. He said, The way we use our tongues, one moment we bless God, the next moment we curse human beings. He says, This ought not to be. Why? We're speaking of God's image bearers. We ought to give every other human being such respect. This gives us clarity. It gives us courage. It gives us compassion because it explains us. It explains us. Before I move on from that point, my friend, let me just say this to you directly. For those of you who may be doubting it, Your life, your life is valuable. Don't let anybody tell you it's worthless. Don't let anybody doubt, make you doubt the worth of your life. Don't even let yourself doubt it. You are valuable because you are bearing God's image. Lost, perhaps, straying, perhaps, gone a direction you ought not to, Perhaps, but you are valuable in God's, eye, God's eyes. Was the prodigal son any more valuable to the father just because he started coming back to him? No, he was as valuable when the father saw him at a distance, running toward him and his father running toward him as he was when he was feeding on the husks and the pigsty. My friend, no matter how far you are from God, God wants you to come back. He has put his image in you. Render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, yes, but to God the things that are God's, and you belong to God. I taught a membership class this morning, and one of the men in that class, I I know he would not mind me sharing this, he said that when he, at a point in his life, he he had strayed away from God, he said there was a song that he had learned as a little boy in church that kept coming back to his mind. He said he couldn't get it out of his mind. He had learned it as a little child. He couldn't get it out of his mind. For days, he said, it was the song, Softly and Tenderly, Jesus is Calling. You know, if, if Jesus is calling you, you won't be able to get him out of your mind. Every time you look in the mirror, you won't be able to get it out of your mind. He wants you. He's calling you. You bear his image. That resemblance is not an accident. So come. This not only explains us, but it also unsettles us. The the fact that that we bear God's image, but have fallen into sin, we ought to find very unsettling. And here's why because it tells us that everything we are as human beings, as noble and lofty as we can be, everything we are has now been twisted in a wrong direction. And in that truth, you find a confirmation for your deepest suspicions about what's wrong, and that it's really bad. It's, it's even worse, it's, it's worse than you know. You have abandoned the very one who loves you the most. It's not that you're a little messed up, it's not, it's not just that you've made a few mistakes, it's not just that you've gone a little stray, it's much worse than that and maybe you're thinking, this is why I don't like to come to church, because the guy gets up and tells me every how bad I am. The, my friend, the, the doctrine of sin is a reality without which you will never understand yourself, and furthermore, it's actually the gateway to the best news ever. But I'm okay with you being unsettled for, for just a few moments in a service if you can settle once and for all your relationship with God. It's worth it. It, yes, it's unsettling. Yes, it's un- unsettling to discover that you were created to have a relationship with one that you've, you've cut him off from your life, that you resemble one that you were supposed to adore and enjoy, that you now are reigning and ruling in such a way that is not bringing him glory. That's unsettling indeed, but it's something that if you don't realize and come to an understanding of, you'll never turn to the right path. So yes, this reality, the scriptural truth, it both explain, it does explain us. Yes, it does. It also unsettles us. But I move quickly to this third point, and that is that it appoints us. It points us to Jesus, and here's why. Genesis chapter 1 sets forth the fact that what it means to be a human being is to bear God's image. That's settled. I explain the meaning of that? We looked at it in, in the perspective of our sinfulness. Okay, then before I came up to preach, Kim read Psalm 8. They asked, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you Pay any attention to him. You've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. You've crowned him with glory and honor and given him dominion. You know what? As you look toward the New Testament, you realize that that psalm, which is a poetic commentary on Genesis 1:26 and 27, that psalm finds its fulfillment in a man from Nazareth named Jesus. He is the one true image bearer of God. That's what the New Testament teaches. When we look, when we follow the star of the image of God, in the Bible, it hovers over the little stable in Bethlehem and points to Jesus, who is the one who perfectly fulfills everything the image of God is meant to be. How so? Well, what it means to be created in the image of God means that we're to have a resemblance. We have a certain resemblance to God. Where do you find a perfect resemblance to God? Where do you find, where do you find a human being perfectly resembling God? Don't look at me don't look at the person on your pew, don't look in the mirror, where do you find the person that perfectly resembles God? Throughout his life, Jesus kept telling people, look at me. Who does that? Seriously, who does that? Jesus kept telling his disciples, you want to understand who God is? Watch me. Near the end of Jesus' life, before he went to the cross, his disciples, he said, I'm going back to the Father, and they're like, oh, I I sure wish we could see him. Jesus said, I'm going to return to my Father. And they're, they're, they're saying, oh, we really would like to see the Father. And Jesus said, have I been so long with you and you, you don't even know me? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Why? Because Jesus is the image of God who perfectly resembles the Father. Furthermore, Jesus was the only human being who perfectly related to the Father. He enjoyed a perfect relationship with God as his Father, always obeying him, always loving him, always adoring him. He says, I always do the things that please my Father. And Jesus, because he perfectly resembled the Father and because he perfectly related to the Father, he also perfectly ruled for the Father. If you know anything about the life of Jesus, you might be asking, ruled? How did he rule? What I know about Jesus is not that he ruled he never wore a crown well not a golden crown at least he never lived in a palace he never was surrounded by courtiers he never held a golden scepter how did he rule no the end of his life he mounted not the stairs to a palace but a hill called mount calvary he was put Not upon a throne, but upon a cross. How did he rule? My friends, that is how he ruled. What does a king do for his people? A king defends his people against their worst enemy. What was Jesus doing when he hung upon the cross as the image of God? He was ruling for God by defending us against sin and death. That's how Jesus rules. That's Jesus' kingly posture. Taking our sin the perversion of the image of God that that we find within us. We've perverted it, and Jesus says, I'll take that, I'll bear that, I'll overcome that, and in so doing, Jesus rules as king. Don't you see? How the very teaching about the image of God, it points us to Jesus as the true image of God. He is, Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 says, the image of the invisible God. This, we read the same thing in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3, and read it elsewhere throughout the Bible, such as in 2 Corinthians 3 and 4, that in Christ we see God. And that means the fact that this teaching on the image of God points us to Jesus. It means that Jesus is our Savior and he can be your Savior, my friend, if you swear your allegiance to him. If not, you are unprotected. Have you done that? It's amazing to me. I was sharing with the group at our 8 o'clock prayer meeting. Sunday after Sunday, I look out in this Congregation, I see, I see faces that I don't know. I see people. In some cases, I know that you don't haven't trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior. I, I plead with you, my friend. Apart from Christ, you are unprotected. He is the King that can save you from your sin and the death that ensues from your sin. But He will not protect you unless you seek His protection. Take refuge in Him. You, you think I'm afraid to do that? Hasn't He diagnosed your illness? Hasn't he told you exactly what's wrong with you? Then can you not, you tr- can't you trust him to give you the cure too? And what is the cure? It is simply this, trust him. And for those of you who have trusted in him, Jesus is not only your savior, but he's also your goal. That is, he's your example. He's the one that you follow. You see, the, being, Jesus being the image of God means not only that he saves us because now we are representative represented by him it also means that once we trust in him that puts you and me along a process whereby god is making you and me more like jesus the theological word for that is sanctification It is the process whereby God is making you more like His Son, Jesus Christ, so that we will be, Romans 8, conformed to His image. You and I, as as fallen image bearers, have distorted, perverted the image of God. Jesus corrects it. He is the true image of God. Now, under his protection, saved by him, we are increasingly becoming more like him. That's conformity to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. Now, how does that help us? Here's how it helps you. It means that everything that is going on in your life right now, everything, the grief that you feel in your heart at this moment, the temptations that you're facing, you face this past week, the temptations and struggles that you're going to face this week, everything that is happening in your life as a believer is part of God's chiseling process to make you look more like Jesus. There is, there's no accident, there's nothing random that's happening in your life. The, the trial that you have experienced in the past few weeks, the heartache that has been throbbing within your life, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, it's not random, it's not throwaway. God's using it to make you more like His Son, Jesus Christ. That's called sanctification. You can be sure of that, my friend. And there's four things you should know about that. This process, I'll tick through these just by way of closing. First of all, this process is a gradual process of becoming like Christ. It's a gradual process. I don't know about you, but I get impatient with that. I want to I be like Jesus now. I'm not. It's a gradual process. that the process of sanctification becoming more like Jesus it mirrors the biological growth in fact in the scripture the, the bible compares us to babies yeah we got to grow like babies like a plant like a a tree planted by a river that stretches its roots toward the water source my friend if you're a believer in Jesus Christ that process that god is at work in your life to make you more like Christ it's gradual, so be patient. Be patient. Don't get discouraged. It's, it's happening. You may, you may not see your growth as well as others do, but you are growing. You are becoming more like Jesus. The second thing to know about this process is that it is sometimes painful. It is sometimes painful. The Bible talks a lot about suffering. Why suffering? I sure wish it weren't. I sure wish suffering weren't part of it. But God in his wisdom uses the painful things in your life to make you more like Jesus. When you're walking along a beach looking for pretty stones or polished shells, the one that will catch your eye is the one that is shiniest. Why? Because it has the one, been the one that has been worn down the most, polished the most by a million collisions with other rocks and other pieces of sand. What is? It's the process of smoothing, of perfecting. God's doing that in your life. If God directs the polishing of every stone upon every beach in this world, surely He is concerned about the collisions that you're having, the little micro-collisions or the macro-collisions, the trials that you're facing. God is using it in your life. It may be painful right now. It may bring you tears right now. Oh, but one day He will wipe away all those tears. And you will know that every single tear you have shed, God has bottled it up. He's counting it. He counts all the sobs. He knows your sorrows. And He's using it so that you can become more like His Son, Jesus Christ. It's a gradual process. It's sometimes a painful process. It's a glorious process. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 says that we are being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. And finally... And most encouragingly, I think, it is a certain process. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be what? Conformed to the image of his son. That's certain. I mean, you can take all your money to the bank on that one. There is There is nothing that will stop God's process in your life of making you more like Jesus. Any journey that you embark upon, if you have some sort of doubt whether you're actually going to get to the destination, that'll be a real big discouragement from you persisting on. But here is the destination that is already in God's mind, signed and sealed. In fact, in Romans 8, it's spoken as if it were in the past tense. It's called a divine past because God sees it so certain. He says it's as if it's already done. God will not waste any trial in your life. He will bring you step-by-step step to likeness. That's what he's doing in your life now. That process is certain. And one day, with cheeks wiped free from tears, blending our voices with other brothers and sisters who are all also like Christ, we will praise him perfectly. Oh, to be like thee, blessed Redeemer, This is my constant longing and prayer. Gladly I'd forfeit all of earth's treasures, Jesus, thy perfect likeness to wear. Oh, to be like thee, oh, to be like thee, blessed Redeemer, pure as thou art. Oh, to be like thee, oh, to be like thee, stamp thine own image deep on my heart. Would you bow your heads? Can we take a minute to think and pray? I don't know what, what part of this truth from God's word you needed to hear this morning, but don't let it be wasted upon a busy afternoon or the thing you have going on next. Don't let it be wasted. Maybe you are so discouraged. It just seems like, like nothing. There's no pro- progress in your life spiritually my friend, there is. God will not abandon what He has made His own. He is changing you. He is growing you. This process is certain, though gradual it is. Or it could be that you have realized for the first time that the diagnosis of your condition is spot on, and you are being drawn to the master physician, the Savior, Jesus Christ. Don't delay don't delay trusting in him and doing whatever you need to find out what that means. What, there may not be another moment in which Jesus is calling you like this. You're not guaranteed that. For all of us, we need to know that Jesus is the true image of God. And into that image, we are being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. Our Father, I pray that you would take what we've heard and learned and seal it to our hearts. Use it, I pray, to draw us closer to you. And if there's anyone in this room who is still not running to Christ, who is still putting Christ at a distance, I pray that he or she would come to realize that in Jesus is to be found all the treasures that they could ever want and need. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.